What do you know about that, man? <laughs> that was pretty fun. <laughs> I'm going to be sniffling. This is not going to be good. I think you should just own it and say, yeah, hey, oh, I'm the going Ohio to. Valley, we're just owning it. <laughs> Trust me, I'm, go I'm going to. I'm sorry. These allergies are kicking my butt today. So I might be a little sniffly. I hope not, but it's unavoidable. Earlier we were at the uh, we went to Dick's Sporting Goods and got some fishing bait before we came here for a shoot we're going on. And there was a cute cashier, and I didn't have any Kleenexes or anything, and I was just trying so hard not. Thought was running over your. Oh my gosh! I was trying as hard as I could to not look like a fool. But how you doing? Yeah. At some, at, at some point, I just kind of walked towards the door and let Brooks take care of it. Aww. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. Let's kick this bad boy off. I am uh, Chase, sitting down with Lee McClellan. And How are you? Laura Burford is a guest today. Hello. And Laura, I've been trying to figure out your title for, I mean, I know what your title is. You're a, a wildlife program coordinator, but you do quite a few things, right? Well, I do. I mean, to explain it pretty simply, I work in our wildlife division. Yeah. And I work very closely with uh, what's called our wildlife diversity section. So, and a quick question. Is wildlife and non-game pretty much the same thing? Or does, does wildlife encompass game as well? Well, I think when we talk about wildlife, it encompasses the whole thing. Okay. I mean, our, our agency's mission is, you know, part of that is to manage wildlife resources mm -hmm. for everybody. Well, yeah. game species just make up really a, a really small amount of that. Yeah. About 90% of what we have out there is not considered a, a huntable, fishable, or trappable species. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. we, yeah. you know, we have a section that we call our wildlife diversity section. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the section of the agency that deals with those animals that aren't hunted or fished. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as far as funding goes, because all of our money comes from either uh, Pittman-Robinson tax mm -hmm. dollars or license sales, mm -hmm. which makes up the bulk of it. And the Wallet Bro Amendment as well? Yes, we have we have Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson and Wallop Bro and and those are you know those are big names. What it means is when people are buying their licenses or they are buying things like ammunition or boat fuel that sort of thing. Uh, when we receive federal money, mm -hmm. it's based on those sales. Yeah, well, and, so, so uh, there's a there's a special tax on those items mm -hmm. that goes to a federal fund, which then is divvied up among the states. Yes. But yes. almost like a big grant. You I mean you kind of have to apply for it in a different way, right? Like it a, is. I mean it, it is it's it, it's not equally split among No, the states. it's not. And yeah. it's a big formula. And, yeah. and the reason that formula uh, was created and that's what, what what the federal folks use is that um, different states have different populations. Mm -hmm. And it, it, population density plays into it along with license sales. Um, and certainly, um, you know, if, if you look at it, when we're in Kentucky, we have a lot of wildlife. But you look oh, at yeah. a state like Texas or Louisiana or something that also is dealing with marine fisheries mm -hmm. and coastal and things, it, they have a formula that makes it fair. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's good. And that's uh, talking about Kentucky having a lot of wildlife. That's something I'm going to come back to in a second because I was actually listening to you talk the other day at uh, the Kentucky Wild Reveal, I guess is what right. I would call it, the announcement. Kickoff. Yeah, and you said something that, that resonated with me. But uh, going back to funding, because that's kind of what I was curious about in the first place, was uh, how much of that funding that comes from license sales and those tax dollars that we just talked about actually goes to the Wildlife Diversity Program as opposed to the game animals, hunted fish or trap. Okay. Well, it's, I mean, it's a little bit hard to separate out simply because yeah. the formula kind of changes every year. Mm -hmm. But I think it really goes... 
probably best just to start at the beginning. And when state fish and game agencies were created, um, they were created because there was a lot of overharvest for game species. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when when initially this was happening, sportsmen and women were paying for conservation. And and they always have paid for conservation. And And they still are. And the majority of the species that we're focused on game species. I mean, that just makes sense. That's not to say that fish and wildlife agencies like ours haven't invested in animals that are not hunted or fished. I mean, we we certainly, certainly have. But when you look at it long term, there are a whole lot of animals out there and there is just only so much funding to go around. Right now, um, you know, we do get receive some federal grant money to work specifically on threatened and endangered species. And we also receive a, a, a different pot of money, so to speak, to work on animals that are outlined in our state wildlife action plan. And we can kind of get into that more yeah. maybe later. Those are the vulnerable animals that you kind of talked about before. Right, right. Well, Those are the animals that we we are we consider in greatest conservation need. And when I, I keep referencing hearing you say something or talking about something before, it's probably important that I say where. So you've been working um, on a program called Kentucky Wild for yes. a good little bit now, but it just recently was launched. And uh, us here at Kentucky Field TV and also Lee and the guys with the magazine have kind of done some promotional stuff. I think mm-hmm. we, we put together a video, a radio commercial on a Lee covered the reveal. So we've been kind of working hand in hand to, to help you guys promote yes. this, this new program. So that's why Lee and myself have heard some of this information before and why we're a little bit familiar with it. But I just wanted to give a little backstory there sure, because it, sure. could, it could be confusing to someone if they say, well, he heard her say it before. Well, you know what I mean? That, that's how we heard you say it. And that's why I have a little bit of insight into the program, too. And I, I'm pretty excited. I think it ties everything together pretty well. And the non-game species are something that haven't really been looked at by most of fish and wildlife constituents in the past because those most of our money comes from hunting and fishing license sales. Right. We are really, really excited about yeah. Kentucky Wild. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of coming from a little bit of a different perspective. I, Lee, I don't remember when you started with the agency, but I've worked here since 1994. It was 18 <laughs> years ago. Yes, 2000. Okay, okay. well, I got you beat. <laughs> I got you Just beat a little bit. bit. But, um, you know, I started my career with the agency in our then non-game program. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we all recognized that there was a whole lot of work to do, but we didn't really have a steady way to partner, maybe, with with our constituency that's out there that is interested in songbirds yeah. and bats and butterflies and some of these other non-huntables. Well, it's like you said, if we wanted somebody who wasn't interested in deer hunting or fishing or anything like that, somebody who enjoyed uh, bird watching songbirds or just, and my girlfriend, she really likes going to the creek and flipping over rocks and finding snakes and salamanders and all kinds of stuff like this. Like, that might be one of her greatest hobbies. <laughs> but uh, if somebody wanted to support those animals and they didn't hunt or fish, we still asked them to buy a hunting or fishing license. And that's how we would get, you know, a little bit of a donation, air quotes, yeah. But, well, I mean, and that that's the tricky part. Yeah. I mean, unless somebody is really excited about fishing or mm-hmm. hunting, it just it doesn't make sense yeah, exactly. for them to buy a license. And it was just unfortunate because we didn't really have a good way to partner. And, you know, sometimes I, I think there are a lot of Kentuckians out there that maybe don't even realize that we have an entire staff of scientists that work specifically on the animals that are hunted, fished, or trapped. That might be new news to folks, Mm -hmm. and maybe we haven't done a good enough job of of saying that, or maybe folks just didn't realize it, but we do. And we've had this section for a long time. We've done a lot of really wonderful things, but up to this point, we just haven't had the money behind it to really support all of the work yeah. that needs to be done. And so this this new program, Kentucky Wild, do you want to just run through what it is real quick as far yes. as what's what's available for somebody who's interested? And then we can kind of get back into 
how it's going to help and, sure. and some things like that. So sure. Well, Kentucky Wild is is a it's at its core a membership program. Mm-hmm. It's a way it's a fun it's a way for people to financially partner with us in the scientific work that we're doing. And the reason we set it up as a membership is because honestly, that's kind of a fun way to do it. And we have ways for individuals to, uh, to partner with us as members. And we also have a way for businesses to do that as a, as a corporate sponsorship. So at our membership level, it starts at $25 and then it goes on up to a thousand dollars. So there's, there's six different membership level and each membership level has different uh, swag associated with oh, yeah. it. You know, there might be different things you get at each level. Um, with all of our membership levels, we have regular communication with folks. We're going to do an e-newsletter. We're going to do updates out. Mm-hmm. So folks that do partner with us can see what their money is going for. I, mean, I think that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. I'm donating. Uh, what what are, what are some of the things that my money is going to be used for? Mm-hmm. And then probably the thing that I personally am most excited about is that for each level, we are also um, making an opportunity available for some of the members at that level to go out in the field with some of our wildlife yeah, professionals. And that's that's cool. A little hands-on. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. And most of those um, experiences are on non-game animals. A couple of them aren't. But the big thing is we want folks to get to go out in the field with us side-by-side, not this this isn't a staged thing. This mm-hmm. is this is the real deal. So if it's raining that day, guess what? Put on your rain gear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the animals might surprise us. You know, the the one experience we're getting ready to start on. In fact, we've already drawn some of our members to go out into the field with us is a goose roundup. So everybody said, well, how long is that going to take? Well, don't know. Depends on how many geese we catch that day. But it's a chance to go out and meet the scientists that are doing the work and then participate. We really want this to be something that our members can participate in. So uh, we'd love to take everybody. Each one of these membership levels will draw a few yeah. um, that will get to go out with us. And uh, we're, we're excited about seeing how that goes. Oh, that sounds cool. And if you want, I mean, obviously, if these people are becoming members. They've already bought into the program. Right. But when you get hands-on like that, that's when you really feel like you're a part of it, I'm yes. sure. Yes, it definitely will. It's going to be a cool experience. So, <laughs> But this money is, is like you said, going to be going to help non-game species or wildlife vulnerable yes. species is kind of how you've worded it. Yes. Let me talk about that just a minute. All of the, all of the funding that comes in through Kentucky wild is going to be kept in a separate account mm-hmm. and it will be used exclusively on projects within our wildlife diversity program. Yeah. So um, I want to, I want to stop just a second here and say that, you know, if you get a pot of money, it might be really tempting to say, Oh, well, we're going to do this project or this project or this project and, and not really have a plan. I, I really want to say that that's not the case here. We have a plan. A lot of folks may not realize it, but Congress requires that each state fish and game agency have what's called a state wildlife action plan. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot of words. What a state wildlife action plan is something that we maintain and review every 10 years, and it allows us to focus what needs to be done on the animals that yeah. have that are in the are in the greatest need. And the state wildlife action plan that we write, have right now, which was developed not just by our agency, it was developed with other partners. Um, you know, wildlife don't really respect boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they don't recognize our state lines. Uh, we developed this with partners and, and other land holding folks within the state, like Forest Service, Nature Preserves Commission. We've come up with the animals and the habitats that they depend on that are the most critical. Mm-hmm. 
And those are the animals that are going to receive our attention first. Okay. Those are the habitats that will. So first. some of the some of the focus, it sounds like, is going to be on habitat improvement. Absolutely, just protecting habitat. Absolutely, okay. and a lot of it is with our water resources. Yeah. We have a very diverse population of freshwater mussels. We have a very diverse population of, of salamanders. Hellbender salamanders. Hellbender salamanders. Yeah, that's yes, one that's I've heard a lot of. <laughs> oh, that's one on the horizon. We're very excited about yeah. about doing those projects. But in doing so, when we can concentrate on the habitat. That really makes more sense. You're getting more bang for your buck. You, when you improve water quality, when you improve, excuse me, when you improve the habitat quality, whether that be you know in forest restoration along streams, whether that be in um, you know if a dam is removed from a stream and you can improve it to a more natural setting. You are benefiting oh, yeah. hundreds of species, well, not just one. Elise covered that on the Green River with mm -hmm. the dam being removed, and it's almost like it was years ago. It's amazing. And uh, Zach Danks came on with us a few months ago before turkey season, and we were talking about pulse per hand and, and kind of numbers being down, and a lot of that has to do with, so tying it into a game species, a mm -hmm. lot of that mm -hmm. has to do with quality of habitat and how people are bush hogging their fields and, and just habitat being lost Mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. so i mean the habitat work i'm sure will improve game species and i mean it's it, yes. it certainly but, but long story short, short basically you know zach is saying that habitat was the number one factor in the turkey populations and in the decline or the increase where whatever it might be i mean it just shows you how important habitat mm -hmm. is right there so that's something that seems like our biologists hit on quite a bit so oh they do mm -hmm. i mean it, it it's really at the core of everything that we're looking to do it's important that when we do habitat work Obviously, we want to benefit what happens in Kentucky, but yeah. oftentimes we're partnering with states around us. And habitat is important not just to the animals that live here year-round. We are also a very critical stopover point for animals that are migrating through well, here. Because we're, we're kind of in a flyway, mm -hmm. right? We're in a flyway, so whether that be for waterfowl, whether that be for migratory songbirds, mm -hmm. whether that be for bats that are moving around, whether that be for, for monarchs sure. from, yeah. and monarch butterflies yeah. that, are, that are making their way south all the way to Mexico. Mm -hmm. I mean, the quality of our habitat here benefits species that uh, that may not even breed here. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. I hadn't mm -hmm. really thought about it for anything other than waterfowl. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, waterfowl. I didn't I, the because like the monarch thing doesn't even you know occur to me. Sandhill cranes. Sandhill right? cranes. Sandhill yeah. cranes. One of my first assignments with Laura was. Do you remember we went to Louisville? Oh, I remember. And they were. They were Establishing the whooping cranes when we were trying to teach them how to migrate when, yes. they, when these populations were expanding. I sent a picture to the New York Times from that, but they didn't use it. <laughs> they asked <laughs> me if we didn't use it. I was like, good try. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was very unique. And, and all the people were dressed up like cranes. So they would remember, so they would not have any human interaction. In right. The idea was that when you um, they were looking at establishing a whooping crane population in the eastern United States, and um, that migration pattern has to be learned from mm -hmm. the adults. Well, mm -hmm. the problem was there there weren't there adults, were adults, and so they were using sandhill cranes, sort of as as, as surrogate parents, mm -hmm. and were wanting to teach these young birds to be able to migrate mm -hmm. south. And and to do so, you didn't want to have the human form exposed. So they would wear these things that look like giant hazmat suits. <laughs> yeah, they were, but they were painted up like a like a crane. They were. They were it was I mean, crudely. You know. <laughs> and, and they they led them with ultralight planes. The ultralight yeah, I've seen the crab. pictures of people leading waterfowl before with with planes that almost had that exact same. It was like a huge crane is yeah. probably what the plane looked like. Yeah, follow the leader. I mean, that, that's kind of how it worked. But that it was, was a, that was a neat exciting. assignment. That it sounds was. pretty interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating. Uh, it almost seems like a joke, though. Go dress up like a crane. And, 
and they would feed them and stuff. Remember, yeah, they up, would so they would be no human. Yep. That's interesting. Did they fly in the little outfit too? The guy in the ultralight was he in his little? Surely, I don't know how distinct outfit, but it didn't look like a person. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely concealed. Up too. Yeah, concealed, <laughs> concealed a human form. <laughs> Hey, I guess uh, take all precautions. Yeah. Dress up like a. I, I might be a tactic I used uh, hunting this year. Dress up like a. Well, that sounds dangerous. Never mind. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't, like do that. don't do that. A whooping crane. <laughs> dress up like a whooping crane. <laughs> no, no. No. I, I got to assume that's probably against some kind of law. Check with Gabe. Yeah. Oh, we got off. Uh, Lee, you've been writing quite a bit down over there. Well, um. One of the reasons is I'm working on a piece about Kentucky Wild, too, so mm-hmm. I wanted to fill in any of the gaps. Oh, so you're just kind of taking down some info. Yes. Cause, oh, uh, very good. We're working on it together, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, I want to make sure if there's any gaps in it when we go to final edit, I can fill it in. So. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not sure. You've covered Kentucky Wild fairly well mm-hmm. so far. I'm sure you got a lot left you'd like to say about it. But So I'll tell you, one of the things, or, or a couple of things that I'm pretty excited about with Kentucky Wild I mean, even though I'm somebody, so I'm somebody who enjoys the game species a lot. I like mm-hmm. hunting, fishing, everything. I even did some trapping this past year, but I enjoy the non-game species as well. And when I think about how I probably first got interested in the outdoors, because my, my parents weren't into hunting or my dad fished, but he wasn't really super into it. So when I think about my first experiences being interested in the outdoors, it was probably when I was just a little kid out, you know, catching snakes and bugs and, right. and lizards. And I remember catching five line skinks at school during recess and all this stuff so that's the way a lot of people probably get interested in the outdoors for the first time or start to gain interest in it mm-hmm. and i know people like my girlfriend i mentioned earlier that is her main interest in the outdoors so there's a lot of people out there that even though i feel like the majority of our listeners are probably people who are hunting and fishing mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there and i'm sure that those people know some people who who would care a lot more about this program than they would you know, a lot of the other stuff that we do up here. Right. So, so, I mean, there is a, a large group of people that this is going to, you know, affect and that are really going to care about this. And then speaking to the people who hunt fish and that's their main interest, well, habitat improvement, like you said, oh, that's yeah. one of your main focuses. That's going to, that's going to help everything. I think our traditional user base that we have in hunters and anglers have a huge legacy to be proud of, mm-hmm. not just of game animals. I mean, yeah. I think if you are in a hunting and angling, you're going to remember elk, yeah. deer, turkey. These are huge success stories. But uh, some of the monies that, well, when Peregrine Falcons, which is how I I started my career with the agency. That's pretty awesome. With Peregrine Falcons. That's something I'm just thrilled to death that we have them now. When I started, you know, there were hardly any. Mm -hmm. Without her, we would not have. Oh, yeah, it's all me. No, no, no. It was a very, very instrumental. This program was, it it was amazing because, again, Kentucky was participating with other states. Um, Private organizations. You had LG&E and Louisville was one of them. Yes, we had utility partners that were were critical. Yeah, KU, uh, Louisville Gas and Electric. It was it was a big deal. These folks were, were invested in it, and it was sports uh, sportsmen and women's dollars that that paid for it on our end. And now they can have a lot of pride in saying we have peregrine falcons now in yeah. our state. Um, so there were success stories early on. We have a lot more work that needs to be done, and now we have a program where folks that are interested can partner with us without buying a hunting and fishing license. They can partner with us by purchasing a membership to Kentucky Wild and knowing that those monies are going to go for these species of greatest conservation need. One of the things I learned while we were working with you on Kentucky Wild, we were at the Muscle Facility, which is state-of-the-art. I mean, Mm -hmm. honestly, you look at it from the outside, it doesn't look like all that much, but then you walk in and you start talking to Monty, really. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Dr. Monty McGregor, and he, you know, you think he's a biologist, but at the same time, he is world-renowned. Yes. For the work he does. And you start hearing about, like, there, I'm not going to be able to describe this well. You probably know a lot more about <laughs> it than I do. But you have, in order for muscles to 
reproduce, they need a, a host, which would be a fish. And it doesn't, yes. it doesn't um, injure the fish or anything like that. But basically, the muscles will shoot, uh, I'm not sure what the word for it would be, almost like an egg, a larva. It's a larva. It's a larva. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shoot the larva up into the fish's gills right. when it gets close, and those mm-hmm. larvae grow on the fish's gill. And then when they reach a certain size, they drop off and they become mussels at the bottom of the creek yes. or stream. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's a way to artificially create that host. You don't actually need, or does he, he still uses fish for host for some mussels. For some, but not others. There are many uh, species of freshwater mussels that they're not quite sure what that Who fish host, host is. Or the host yeah. may be gone. But he, he right. figured, so uh, before Monty started figuring this out, there were there were there's something he does where nobody else had ever done it, and he's done it 19 times with 19 different muscles. Well, he's so. he's been able to perfect a technique that I believe he's calling in vitro. But he's yes. he's the person who is on the front end of that. He's the, the, yes. the first one, and he's done it. Cutting edge. He's like, yes, he's able to grow. He's basically able to let this muscle complete its life cycle without the fish host. Yeah, that's right. And I'm that's saying. neat because if they if they don't know the fish host mm-hmm. or they don't have the fish host anymore. Yeah. He so, can do it. Yeah, so that's that's what I was going to say. He, I knew it was something like that, but mm-hmm. I was I knew I wasn't going to be able to describe it perfectly. <laughs> He's found a way to get nineteen different species of mussels or something like that mm-hmm. to yes. to successfully reproduce without that fish host. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it was some of the fish hosts we don't even know, some of them we don't have. Mm-hmm. So he has basically been able to find a way to make something happen nobody else could ever make happen. He's done it nineteen different times. Mm-hmm. I think somewhere he told me that there were four other cases of somebody being able to do it. Somewhere else. That, I'm, I might be misspeaking. So I don't I'm, know, I'm but when you drive past the Center for Mollusk yeah. Conservation in Frankfurt, you're not going to give it another look. You're yeah. going to drive right past it. It's I usually, really <laughs> I'm usually looking to the left towards the creek. Toward the right, creek, yeah. right. It's a very unassuming building. But Monty McGregor, I mean, his staff, it, it, they are so dedicated to what they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think I can really do it justice. But when you're talking about people needing to be there seven days a week, sometimes spending the night at the facility if it's during a very, very critical time, uh-huh. the folks that we have working here are passionate about yeah. what they are doing yeah. and and are making a difference. When you can say, you know, Monty is trying very, very hard to restore the the freshwater mollusk fauna in the Licking mm-hmm. River and the Green River to what it used to look Mm -hmm. like. That is no small task. Um, But it's making a difference. It's making the difference between saying, hey, these are just mussels. It's okay if they disappear. So what if it's an endangered species? Nobody ever sees them. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. This is is what I learned while we were at the mussel facility was actually the main benefit of the mussels is water quality. Yes. So there's an experiment. I think Monty might have done it. He sent us the video where he basically had a tank of dirty water here (laughs) and a tank of dirty water here. And he had uh, like almost a white balance sheet behind it or is you know like a grid a white and black grid so that when the visibility of the water started to improve you'd be able to see what was behind it almost like a checkerboard or something like that and in one tank he had like one muscle or something like that mm-hmm. two more like very few muscles maybe just one muscle another tank he had none and he did a time lapse and that tank with that one muscle and it cleared up i don't know up to 10 times faster i mean the <laughs> amount of filtration i'm assuming it's the filtration those muscles mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. that the muscle provided for that water was ridiculous so if we have a healthy mussel population in our streams and creeks, it's going to really improve the water quality. Absolutely. Is, and that, that allows the species like the hellbender right. and fish species and, and everything else to... It all plays a part. Yeah. It all plays a part. We yeah. can't we can't take out one of the pieces and expect everything yeah. to function the way it used to. Well, that's probably the main disconnect most people have with it is they don't understand. Okay, why are muscles important? They mm-hmm. just they don't really care about muscles. But mm-hmm. if they understood, you know, why they were important and what it the kind of an impact it would have, mm-hmm. then they'd probably be a little bit more 
So I think education is a big part of it, too. Oh, it is a part of it. It, it, it absolutely is. And we're just excited that we have a program now that yeah. will allow folks to partner with us on the species that they care about. Mm -hmm. You know, that that they, uh, you know, 90% of the species we have out there are not hunted, fished, or trapped. There's yeah. a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you're interested, you know, Lee, if you're interested in freshwater mussels, but I'm interested in songbirds and Chase mm -hmm. is interested in salamanders, this is a program that would appeal to all yeah. of us. Some of the neatest things I've gotten to do in my career is with Monty and freshwater mussel yeah. release of very, very critically endangered species mm -hmm. in some extremely remote areas. Been, mm -hmm. It's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. and the whole, the, the ability to use a lure that looks just like a certain species of bait fish or crayfish and mm -hmm. to entice the smallmouth or the host fish to bite. Yes. It's amazing how that, it's just amazing how that evolution occurred. The muscle does that? Yes, the muscle displays a lure. Uh, not all. Now it's a it's a part of its body, body. that it's, it's going it's extending uh, out from the a, shell. A Rapala uh, X rap. Yeah, that's what they use. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Senka. Yeah, uh, but it's amazing they they display this lure out of their body, and it looks remarkably like a common prey species to entice their host fish to bite them, and then they spread the Glochidia. On the gills and Glochidia, that's what it's yep, called. Glochidia. Yeah, and then they no, drop right. off, and there you are. I've got this. It's just an amazing how. How the interconnected <laughs> web, you know, how did that evolve? How did that happen? It's yeah. just I got this ridiculous image of a muscle opening up in a Rapala X wrap floating <laughs> <laughs> out. Oh my goodness! And Rick needs to do a cartoon like that. There we you go. Know, that would be a good one for <laughs> yeah. uh, Rick Illustrated. We'll tell him. We'll tell him. <laughs> Rick Illustrated. Well, the, you know, the mollusks, uh, the Center for Mollusk Conservation is is something that. We would love for everybody to go see. I will do a little plug here for Kentucky Wild and that one of our wildlife experiences, we are going to pull um, a couple of our members and they will get to go with us to the Center for Mollusk Conservation, have a tour of the facility guided by Dr. McGregor, and then have the opportunity to take some of these mollusks that are ready for release into the wild. Uh. And we're going to tag them. That's really, really important. Okay, we okay. are going to we're going to tag them, mark them in a way that we know uh, that when they are reintroduced onto the mussel beds, that when we go back and do surveys in the future, we know when they were when when they were placed out there. How do you tag a mussel? Oh, it's really high tech. Are you ready? You just put them because I know there's, there's some, <laughs> sometimes they, they clip on uh, some fish. They clip or they RFID or they just put a little metal wire. Sometimes in there. there are teeny tiny little tags with numbers on them. That's one way. But another way that Monty has done this before, and I. I can say I've gone out and actually helped is you put a single piece of glitter. They have used different color glitters, uh, gold, red, green, and it's, it's attached with an adhesive that's, you know, like super glue. Super glue and, uh, <laughs> and, and then when that mollusk is placed back into the muscle bed, when they go back subsequent years and they see that little flash in the water, that tells them a lot. It tells them what, what they can identify the species, but it tells them what year it was placed out there. Right. And that's important when you're going to say, hey, are we putting these, these mollusks back into the stream bed? Are they going to survive? That's question number one. But when you start seeing new little mollusks <laughs> appear in the stream bed and they don't have any kind of mark on them, you know that, that tells us, hey, wait, this is new recruitment. This is natural yeah. reproduction. And so that that's important, too. That's really similar to what they do with alligator gar and muskie when they release them, correct? I know with the alligator gar, I've watched the restocking story there, and they actually put a small metal wire, I think, in the in the fin on mm -hmm. the top. I'm not sure, but uh, that way, when they catch an alligator gar, they can scan it, and basically, if the magnet if the magnet picks up on them, it's like a metal detector at a 
they know it's yeah. mm-hmm. they know it's one that was, it was bit, placed. If they get one that doesn't have that, then they know that there's some reproduction going on. They thin clip trout for the same reasons, yeah. mm-hmm. opposite years and yeah. different areas, so they know what year they were clipped. And That's like interesting. I never I never thought about doing it with mussels, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that is pretty cool. And what what other species are? I mean, obviously mussels, snakes, songbirds. I'm trying to remember what the script was that we used for <laughs> that we used for the pretty TV much any, any salamanders, salamanders, yeah. birds of prey, or Raptors, another big yeah. one. You know, what, you know, what, if somebody wants to to find out more about this, uh, I was just thinking about that commercial. So they can get on YouTube and they can search uh, Kentucky Wild, and there's actually a video that us here at Kentucky Field put together, and it has that. That's a script I'm talking about. I can't remember what songbirds, mussels. Uh, it was yeah, all bats the, is another one bats, that has lizards, been mentioned, right? All these different uh species but so there's there's that video they could go check out that's just a quick two minute thing if you just want to learn real quick then there's also the kentucky wild website which is probably most easily accessed through the department's website yes you can we can certainly you know it's fw.ky.gov forward slash kywild and a forward slash is a regular slash right because I, I yeah, it is. I'm, I'm used looking to saying forward slash. I'm looking on my but, keyboard. Right. But that, yeah, that will, the video is great. And, yeah. and you know, we're uh, proud of the video because yeah. our Kentucky field crew did, you did a, a good fabulous job. In it too. job. Oh, I just had the, the intro part. But the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, everything that was put together about it was great. And the other thing I like about it is that everybody in there has a part of Kentucky yeah. Wild. Well, yeah, it was, there, there were no actors. Nope. The, actually, the most acting that was done in that commercial was me and Brian Moore standing in the background as spectators <laughs> for the for the Raptor. No, but, but it, it is exciting that yeah. the folks in there are the people that are doing yeah. the work. Yeah, and, every, everybody and, in there. Uh, Monty, he's in the creek. He's working with mussels. We have, uh, I can't remember, the, the, the bird box, the Kestrel box. I mean, that's what oh, he does. Yes, have, Jim Bernard. Huh? We have Lauren mm-hmm. Taylor Lauren out there. Lauren and Kate and, yeah. and Tracy and, and Sonny. All of these folks that I'm, I know yeah. I'm going to leave people out. All the folks at the Mollus Center. Um, you know, these, these are the people, many of them are career employees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they do this because they love what they do. They yeah. do this because they want to make a difference. And I can tell you that when we started really getting serious about launching Kentucky Wild, you would not find bigger cheerleaders than yeah. our Wildlife Diversity Section because they know what it means. Yeah. That means that so many of these projects that we have wanted to do for so long, we now have an opportunity to, to put that work into well, action. They're hands-on. They're, they're, yeah. they're the ones putting the work in. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure that they're probably the most connected to it but that's kind of what people get if they get the experience yeah, they really do there's a taste of that and we, we, we like again we'd love to take everybody in the field but you know these these are exclusive experiences because it's real science yeah. and when when folks are going out with us um you know they'll have a chance to do a little part of of what these folks are doing every day and and we're excited the experiences that we have now uh we may repeat some of them but we're looking to add new things yeah. we're looking to add new things too one that's in the brochure is Spending a day of field producing a story with a Kentucky field writer. Yes. Maybe. Oh, that's you. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yes, maybe. Uh, on Hopefully on a topic directly related to our action plan. So yes. hopefully if you're out covering a, a reintroduction of a freshwater mussel or maybe placement of prothonotary warbler nesting structures or maybe if we get to do this hellbender project that uh, we're hoping to do in next couple of years, that might be something that would be really fun to cover, Lee. Yes, it would. <laughs> I, lo- I love writing about um, non-game stuff. I think it's fascinating. And, and I won a national award for one I did when they hacked uh, the Peregrine Falcons in Red River Gorge. Yeah, yeah, that this, was a big deal. On this weekend's uh, Kentucky Field Show, I'm not sure if you already knew this or not, but we threw, uh, so I, I put this week's show together and I did the uh, the intro for it. So in the intro, I say Kentucky has a great new program geared towards helping the blah, blah, blah. And then uh, going into the last segment, 
we put a Kentucky Wild plug and commercial. It's a yay a, a fade <laughs> to the website, and then the last uh, segment on this weekend show is the Prothonotary Warbler piece. Oh, good with Lauren and uh, Kate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Chad comes out and he talks a little bit about the new program. And then we go into that. Here's, here's a look at one vulnerable species that you could help, mm-hmm, blah, blah, blah. So, mm-hmm. so this weekend show is actually geared towards uh, helping Perfect. to promote Kentucky wild. Also, we all want Kentucky wild to do good here. Mm-hmm. I know, oh, boy. I know not just, uh, I mean, obviously I wanted to do good regardless, but I know yourself and Leia and a bunch of people mm-hmm. over there and, and on game are pretty tied into it. So mm-hmm. I want to see you guys have something that, that you can work with there too. So this yeah. should be pretty cool. Pretty Shoot, exciting. Shooting the commercial got me pretty geared up for it. <laughs> it's exciting times. It really is. No, it's fun. It's a lot of fun going out in the field with everybody and kind of, I mean, we were obviously filming a commercial, but at the same time we were doing what they do mm-hmm. at work. We were in a mm-hmm. cave with bats or we were in <laughs> it's the, all uh, just really cool. Yeah. Yeah. One of the experiences too, Brian Blank, was like when I do a blue water trail, if you want to go along, we can take a little kayak trip while I'm I'll do that one. pictures. <laughs> Let me go with Volunteers. you. <laughs> no, I have done that with Lee before. Yeah, oh, okay. well, <laughs> we're going to do that again soon. Uh, we're yeah. we're going to try to float uh, uh, green. the Green River yeah. in the section that's now dewatered and restored mm. back to mm-hmm. the way it was 150 years ago. I wish I would have floated that before the dam was removed, but I'm looking forward to going. That way I could have a little bit of contrast, but mm-hmm. been doing a lot of floating here lately. Do you, do you ever get out in kayak, Laura? Uh, not as much as I would like well, to. Tough. Well, I do no, have I a kayak. I might go every day, but I still don't go as much as I'd like to, you know? He's not married. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go every day too, but then I'd be living by myself. Oh, man. Hey. No, I, Nobody can, brother. I, 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 I do it quite a bit. I, you know, I've been, uh, let's see, I think, what day? So I was trying to go last time we did a podcast, which was last Thursday, was it? And storm. The storm. Remember, we were in oh, here. We were, yeah. we were in here recording, and then all of a sudden, I mean, it just got horrible. Uh, we were out. setting up for our press conference for oh, Kentucky yeah. Wild, so that I was remember. some good times. But, uh, yeah. I did I did go, uh, yes, two days ago. I went two days ago. Yesterday, I went fishing with the grandparents. So, see, I mean, I'm family and fishing. We do it together. <laughs> But uh, two days ago, me and Jameson went to Elkhorn mm-hmm. and uh, did pretty well. I think we caught 25 or so smallmouth, a couple big ones. And uh, I told you already, Lee, he caught a 17-inch sauger, which is a big sauger. Mm-hmm. I've caught some good ones on a jerk bait. I told you, wave up above Knight's Bridge one time. I, I mean, caught just, several in there. You can go fish below Lock 4 and perfect sauger fishing time out of a boat, just specifically sauger fishing. You might catch you know, 10 or 15 of them, but you probably aren't going to catch you get one longer 12 inches, you've got a wobble. Yeah. And, but I used to go to Drennan Creek in Henry County. You know Drennan at all? Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we would, I'd like to know it better, actually, but I know it. Well, we were fishing uh, Bullet Hill Road. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's probably three miles upstream of the river, four miles upstream. And we caught, I mean, good sauger in there consistently in the summer. So I don't know if it's just a sauger move up. I think, yeah, they want probably a little bit better, cooler water, more food availability. They move up into the creeks. More oxygenated water. I got a feeling when I go past that... Uh, Spot Jameson caught that big sauger on my float today. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to spend a little time there. I went and okay. bought some small swim baits. Is that what he caught it on? He caught it on a lizard. He actually lost his last swim bait in the hole above where he caught the sauger. And he caught the sauger just a quarter mile upstream of the 127 takeout. That's where the uh, the creek splits and then it comes back together right there before you get to uh, the hole that has no bottom hole in it. Mm-hmm. It's a far, far end of no bottom hole from the deep spot, but caught it right there where the creek converges. So it's a pretty cool spot. But anyway, excited <laughs> about going fishing today. I'm sure I'll see some good non-game animals while I'm out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's no telling much. I look for snakes every time I go. I saw green heron last time. You I know, was going to say herons would be a good one to see along there. And the, the One of the rarer ones I saw was in the place we were talking about that's known as Bass Corner. 
Bass there's, Corner. You need to tell, tell me where some, Bass Corner is. It's right down from Knight's Bridge, where it takes a hard right. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That really cool spot where it flows against the bluff. There's some grasses there, and I look over, and there's a bird moving its head, like that brown and white stripes, what? and it was large, and, and it was an American bittern. A bittern. Oh, wow. It's the only one I've seen. Well, that really? was a unique sight. And I, I just, That's I mean, good. I was mesmerized for minutes, just going, wow, what is what that? Is and that? Then it was too big for a green heron. Hmm. So I was like, this this is, and then I talked to Rick Hill, and he's like, mm -hmm. it was a bitter. That's what it sounds like. Because it, don't, don't they move their head to mimic wind? Well, they can, and just if they look straight up to where you're basically looking at their throat and their beak is pointed straight up to the they sky. They look just like grass. They look like grass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they, you don't see me. <laughs> you know, in that, that little area, I've seen both Orchard Orioles and Baltimore Orioles. Mm -hmm. And one mm -hmm. night I was waiting there, and a cinnamon bat was flying over my head. A what bat? A, the little cinnamon bat. Oh, the the red bats? Yes. The red bats. Cinnamon red. Yep. Cinnamon red. And we're talking about cinnamon but as a wow. color. He was very <laughs> cool. It's cool. It's, they I, are that's really the only neat. time I've seen them. They're really, really neat. But there's a lot so. of caves and stuff around there, so it would be... We have, yeah, we we just have such a variety of wildlife here, and, and it, it really is unique. It's just... It's great that we now have a way that folks can can partner with us on these things that 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 they're interested in. And you know, another thing about about Kentucky Wild is that I think when a lot of folks think about some of these species, it's it's always the endangered or the the imperiled, mm -hmm. and certainly those are going to take our priority. But there's really something to be said for getting ahead of wildlife management, getting proactive mm -hmm. instead of reacting when something's already in trouble. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, because Keep keeping the common things, yeah, keeping the common things common, there's something to be said for that. Because I think if you had asked me 20 years ago if whippoorwills would yeah. be in mm -hmm. decline, if you had asked me if monarch butterflies would be in decline, if you had told me the common little brown bat would be anything other than common, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have believed you. Mm -hmm. But now... All of those things are, are, it's concerning. Monarch butterflies, it's, uh, are, are certainly, certainly in decline and, and could potentially be listed as an endangered species. And oh that, God. that just doesn't I seem. I had them everywhere when I was Yeah, it does yeah, not seem possible. And that's true. I don't see yeah. that many of them anymore. Yeah, you don't see that many of them anymore. And it's, and it's not a, oh gosh, the sky is falling. It's, it's too late. It's too late. That's, that's not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is we have an opportunity now because we see it mm -hmm. to get involved and to do something about it. And, and that's where we are. That's where we are. This is a this is a call to action, and wildlife. If it's going to be important to all of us, we all we all need to have a role. And, yeah, and sportsmen and women are, are certainly doing their part when they are, are are buying their hunting and fishing licenses. And Kentucky Wild is another way that folks can get involved and, and invest in in this so that their generations after us. This have way, it. they can invest specifically in these vulnerable species. In and these vulnerable species, yes. They, they don't have to buy a hunting and fishing license. No, nope. wheels nope, being this, in just break makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah, that is hard to believe. I grew up with my windows open where we lived out in the country and yeah. you would hear them serenading each other all night, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's a part of my formation of my soul. It's strange. And, and you know, it just, mm -hmm. that makes me sick to my stomach. Mm -hmm. And monarch butterflies, I mean, they were so common. You put out there and they'd land on you. And yeah. Right. It does right. seem like they were everywhere when yeah, I was a I mean, kid. all over the place. Yeah, we lived out in the country and I remember, I mean, even at school, at recess, when I was like in elementary school or however old I was, there were monarch butterflies everywhere. So if anybody's listening, plant milkweed. That's milkweed. what the monarch butterfly needs to have. And we have about, oh gosh, 
hope I get this right, I think close to a dozen different species of milkweed that uh, occur in Kentucky. I see milkweed. And uh, yeah, there's a common milkweed that, that you know, that, that's pretty recognizable, but they have to lay their eggs on milkweed. That's what the hmm. caterpillars have to feed on. So if you can plant just a few stems in your backyard, it doesn't matter if you live on a little tiny piece of land in the middle of a suburb or a city, or you have quite a bit of land out in the country yeah, can and do can sow a lot. Do that. Do, do that, that on no property at all. Yep, you could do it. And every little bit makes a difference is, because... Is, is that a precipitating factor in the decline? Is You know, there's a lot of reasons. Um, there's a lot of reasons. There's, you know, as people do more manicured landscapes mm -hmm. and don't want that scrubby, scrubby look around, yeah. whether that be just in residential or farming situations. I wish that mindset would change. Oh, yeah. yeah. But well, I mean, your neighborhood, you know, you're under social pressure. <laughs> if you let like an area go a little bit just to attract bird, I mean, I get, I don't use chemicals because I don't mm -hmm. like it. Yeah, homeowners and I don't have, and my yard is not pretty and I don't care. It's green and it's grown and it covers the dirt. But, mm -hmm. you know, I have a lot of birds. I have worms. I have, because I don't spray that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in it. Uh, but you, you'll get social pressure from family members, from neighbors, you know, and that's, I just wish that mindset of making it look, look like leave it to beaver would, would go <laughs> Go the way of the dodo bird. You With know? the monarch, we can all do our part. Whether if you can't plant milkweed, look at planting flowering native shrubs that, yeah. that provide a nectaring source. So where do you get this stuff though? Like where well, if somebody did want to plant milkweed, would they? You just can get it at local nurseries. Okay. I mean, I would. I without promoting any one particular site, I, I will you know tell you that you can get online and there are there. You are can native. promote particular sites. <laughs> we aren't promoting. We're just telling people where they can get it. Well, I would I would encourage folks. And in, in fact. He, Kentucky has just developed a monarch conservation plan. And part of that we will have, you know, we have lists of local areas that you can you can get this milkweed. It's it's certainly good to to purchase milkweed varieties that are in your zone. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't want to purchase something that yeah. wouldn't grow well here. But in, in addition to that, just leaving native plants that flower is really important because when monarchs are migrating through here, they need to nectar up. <laughs> Even if they're not laying their eggs, they need to find their way if they are are migrating south. So um, you know. So some of the plants that you would plant normally for, for prettiness, well, they use those as well, correct? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like yeah. daylilies or things like that. Good, good nectar sources. Mm -hmm. is, right, but Google's a great resource. Google's a great resource. And, you know, native plants are, are always good. I think one of the things, certainly there are some non-native plants that are quite beautiful, but... Yeah, and hopefully I'm not misspeaking here, but I, I believe there's some research out there showing that though nutritionally it's it's better for monarchs and other pollinators to have these plants, the nutrition that comes from the plants that are supposed to be here. Yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> not as much from the from the plants that like bush honeysuckle. Yes. You know, one, one of my buddies, uh, I talk about Bobby a lot. He has got to come on soon, but he did invasive plant removal for some time, and he did it all along the Elkhorn of Frankfurt for. Uh, private landowners he would go out there and remove invasive plants and so w he came up to the sampler this past weekend and when he was walking around the slato center he was just geeked about the plants and he was yeah. you know talking about all these plants i didn't i can tell one from another but <laughs> he was as excited about that as he was anything it was kind mm -hmm. of interesting but people get into that there's a whole group of people out there him and his girlfriend i mean they're they're big into that area of it. and he does stream water research now he works for a stream water company EcoGrow. And part of his job is planting native plants and habitat to make these streams. He uses the plants themselves mm. to mm -hmm. improve the streams and to make them flow like they should. So mm -hmm. uh, off topic. But that's that's part of what this program is going to do is. as well is to yep. plant native plants and create better habitat and things mm -hmm. like that. So, oh, man, we have our own stream water people here. 
our own streamwater research people oh, yeah. doing. Yes. Who would they? They're not out of HQ here. They're out of another branch somewhere. Philo has some, don't they? Yes. And, yes, uh, they do. You know, all of our fisheries biologists, in a way, are. That was just, no, that was just a curious question. Earlier, almost at the very beginning of the podcast, Laura, I remember saying that you said something that resonated with me, but I was going to come back to it. Mm-hmm. And I just remembered that I said that, so now i got to come back to Uh-oh, it. Oh, now I wonder what it is. No, you, <laughs> and this is such a true point. And I've been pretty lucky with Kentucky Field to travel a lot of the state. And I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to do a lot of hunting and fishing all over the state. So I've elk hunted and bear hunted in and the eastern part of the state. And I've gone to... Uh, Western Kentucky and gone fishing and rabbit hunting and things like that. So you were talking about how diverse our wildlife is in Kentucky and how we're one of the most diverse ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And it's because of our diverse landscape. Yes. So you have the mountains in the east. You have uh, the reclamation sites, which I'm sure adds something to the habitat as well, especially for the elk. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of, you know, um, a lot of those sites were reestablished in grasslands, large grasslands. Mm -hmm. And we've, you know, as our landscapes changed, we've lost a lot of our big landscape, our big grasslands, but we do, our our habitat's incredibly Well, like I was saying, so from the East, you go from the mountains, you go from the the mountain streams and, and the the rivers that we have out there. Then you kind of come into, well, the the Cumberland area is a little bit different, but also the bluegrass region up Mm -hmm. here near Frankfurt, Shelby County, Oldham County. Where we're at. rolls, one of the largest karst, areas in the, in the world yeah so as most you, extensive cave system in the world as you move from east to west or vice versa west to east i mean things change so much over the course of the the state and that's something me and lee hit on before when we were talking about the difference in barkley and kentucky versus cumberland and laurel mm-hmm. because of the difference in the landscape they were built on while some are great for fishing certain species and other lakes are good for fishing other species the same is true for all all of our wildlife and that's why we have such a wide variety in the state is because we have such a wide variety of landscapes for them to live on. So we absolutely do. And, and, you know, some of those landscape changes that have happened, um, have been detrimental to some of our wildlife Mm -hmm. species, but on the flip side, some of them have been very positive. I mean, case in point, like the bald eagle, we have more bald eagles nesting here now. Saw one in Fern Creek. Then we did. (laughs) We saw when we were taken out of Floyd's Fork. Oh yeah. Well, I see bald eagles quite a bit, to be honest with you. I mean, I see them all. I do too. Never near, unlike pretty much in Fern Creek. I remember, I remember, I can't remember the very first bald eagle I saw, but I know I didn't, I didn't see my first bald eagle in the wild in Kentucky until maybe five years ago, mm-hmm. but now it's uh, I, fairly regular. I winter fished at Cumberland forever, and that's where, that was a, I think, Dale, Dale and Cumberland were early I think, I think, the, I think the big reservoirs, especially like Barron, mm-hmm. I know Barron has a lot of a lot of eagles, but I think the reservoirs down in that part of the state were probably first to, to really get some eagles back, if I'm not mistaken. Land Between the Lakes was the LBL. big site. That that was the, the big still, return uh, site, and it's still you know, That's are. where they have the eagle watch. And, you know. but I mean, now I know where there's eagles nesting in Shelby County. I know, right. where, I know where there's eagles nesting in Franklin County, <laughs> over off the Elkhorn and over off Guest Creek in Shelby County. Taylorsville Lake has eagles. Eagles so, kind of attract eagles. Yeah. I mean, before it kind of takes that first um, first yeah. few to come in. It's, it's cool uh, fishing Salt River this year during the white bass run. I was out there just wade fishing Salt River. Here's this eagle, big, I mean, mature bald eagle, white head right above me. I mean, it swooped down and flew right overhead. It's so cool. Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. For hours. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's very you know, cool. I grew up near Burnham Forest, and I saw golden eagles yep. in my youth. Mm-hmm. And I know there's been some efforts along those lines with what some of the things that Kate's been doing. And, and yeah, our golden eagles are ones that, you know, and, and they're easy to mistake if you're not very, very familiar with eagles. An immature bald eagle looks an looks awful like lot a like a golden eagle yeah. until, they, until they get that white head and tail. But that said... We do have golden eagles in Kentucky. We don't have any breeding here that we know of, but we do get them in the winter 
And Bernheim's always been one of their yeah, places. Yeah, Bernheim was this, yeah, their spot. For whatever reason, they really liked Bernheim. Well, Jim Beam's close by. Is that what it is? Yes. Jim Beam Now we know. Well, that makes perfect sense. Of course. <laughs> but I saw one when I was young, and, and, I, and I saw enough bald eagles um, that I kind of knew. And I looked, and, and you know, it was it was just it the the maristics matched a golden eagle, mm-hmm. and then as I got older, I realized, oh well, Bernheim is the crow flies, and there was four miles maybe five yeah. miles from yeah. where I so, um, and I never will forget it was just uh, striking. It's one of those experiences oh, yeah. you remember. It's like one of the things that turned you into doing what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I was, my uncle videotaped in Alaska. I've been. I was lucky enough to go to Alaska. I've been above the Arctic Circle, and that was cool. I saw a lot of eagles there. But the, this, uh, my uncle got it on back in the days of the beta can, so that that oh. dates you. He was filming an eagle around uh, Homer, Alaska, flying, and these seagulls started dive bombing. And oh, one yeah. got close. He grabbed it with his talons, smoked his neck, and then dropped him like he shot him down. Really? <laughs> like it was a World War II dogfight. That'd be awesome. And then it's all, he, he got it all falling straight down. It's like, uh, yeah. Don't poke the bear, Mr. Siegel. There's, yeah. a, there, there's a cool video on YouTube of a, a red-tailed hawk getting a little too brave and swooping down. Like this eagle's flying and this red tail comes in behind him like he's ready to hit him. And that eagle, he turns his head to the right and he sees that hawk almost like out of the corner of his eye. And he barrel rolls in the air and he reaches up and he's flying backwards, like reaching out of this hawk. And it's all in really slow motion. And you see this uh, this hawk just put the brakes on. Like he, he fully extends the wings and just puts the, puts the air brakes on and falls back for that eagle. Basically, did, he, did the eagle didn't get him? No, but it was really cool because it's really high quality footage and it's really slow motion. And you can see the eagle see the hawk. You can see him like basically make a decision and roll. And you can see. I mean, it's amazing him flying like he is backwards. You can see the hawk uh, make a decision and decide, yeah, oh, it's time to bail out. <laughs> I can't really win cool. this one. Notice to birds, don't poke the bear. No, no don't poke the bear. <laughs> no, that, no, the eagle Mr. Def- eagle, let him go on. <laughs> that's definitely the bear. I can't think of a more alpha predator that we have. And we really probably don't have any more of an alpha predator than an eagle in the state, do we? Yeah, pretty good. There's some, there's some owls that can hold their own. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's, owls true. Pretty that's true. Stout. That's true. <laughs> I saw in Central Kentucky Wildlife Management Area years ago. A group of crows just really take out after mm-hmm. a great horned owl and pushed mm-hmm. him into a tree. Hmm. And then, the, I mean, the crows won that battle. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, crows gang up on them. They do. Well, they it's do. crazy to me how you'll see little sparrows and little birds like gang up on anything. It's like big birds just don't get the respect they deserve. <laughs> I don't know. Here's that picture I was going to show you a minute ago, Lee, when I pulled my phone out and started making noise. Just, just because, uh, when we were talking about the elkhorn a minute ago, it reminded me. This is Indian Head Rock you were talking about in the background oh, there. Oh, cool. And the cap, hey, we'll wow. catch those tomorrow. That's what we're going to try to do. But, yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I just caught on the fly rod one day. But you see, uh, that is Indian Head Rock back there. You caught that catfish on the fly rod? Yes. That, that's a nice fly rod. That's uh, just a Reddington. Yeah. Is that the crosswater? Uh, I've had I've looked at Reddington. That reel's nice. It was like, uh, I, I bought it as a, as a package. It was 150 for the, uh, the fly rod, the case, and the, the reel. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. But I, I, that's, that's where I was talking. I remember I told you I'd done some wade fishing mm-hmm. around that spot. And so I saw that picture earlier on my phone and I was thinking, I'm going to show that to Lee later. Yeah, that is very cool. Me and Lee are going to go have a fun day tomorrow morning. Good. Why don't you do some fish. bird watching while you're out there, too? Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, be at, we'll be at the hatchery, so I'm sure we'll see a great oh, blue heron. Oh, yeah, I'd say, or 20. Yeah. Well, I've had them dive bomb me. I feel like I was on Iwo Jima. I'm like, <laughs> and here goes, and you're in a boat, and you're like, 
Oh God, we hit by a big bunch of poop. So you're trying to dodge out of the way. And I've gotten smoked before. I mean, I felt like I was getting strafed by so you know, you a zero on, uh, on Iwo Jima. <laughs> it's amazing how much uh, they make, you know. They got me good. Well, it's happened it to happens. me. It's happened it to me once or twice. <laughs> Man. And you can tell you make a mad because they have that. <laughs> you made me mad by coming near my roots. Hey, well, they, they, I'm going to pay you back. Yeah, yeah you don't want to float under one of those roots. Uh, a no. rookery? There's, a there's rookery? A no. big one on North Elk. Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some big ones. We used to have a rookery over on uh, the farm on Turkey Hunt, and it was, it was really getting those turkeys going. Because they yeah. make so much noise. They do make a lot of racket. Um, about the same time of the morning that the or evening that the turkeys fly up or down. I can't remember. It's been years since I rookery was there, but man, nothing made those turkeys <laughs> gobble quite like those cranes did. <laughs> it was a it was a helpful turkey locator when it was there. there you go. And now they've just moved about four miles downstream. Uh, I'm not sure if they moved, but our rookery's gone, and there's a new. And rookery there's a new one. Yeah, they just moved. Yeah, they might be in a little yeah, bit. There's, there's quite a few at the hatchery. There's, mm-hmm. There was like a little mini rookery out there. I never have seen one on the creek. Is it near the creek out there, but not on it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the rookeries are cool. It makes me feel like I'm like in a Jurassic Park or it something. It feels prehistoric. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's the sounds. And not just that, but those huge nests. They almost look like pterodactyl <laughs> nests. And they got these squawking birds up there. Yep. And, and all the trees are painted that nice white. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're cool, whitewashed though. for sure. You know, that's one That's one bird. Like, we have the goslings running around with the geese here right now. I don't know if I've ever seen an immature heron and known it, like a fluffy little one. I'm sure they're fluffy at first, right? They aren't. You know, yeah, I've, you know, come I, to think of, I've not seen, I've not seen one here. Yeah, I mean, if you see them still in the nest, I'm sure they stay in the nest. Pretty, they stay in the nest a while, hmm. but hmm. <laughs> well, that's why they park right up on top of their food source. Yeah. There, yeah. I mean, you find them on a. Did it, does the audio just change for some reason? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe my sinus is just cleared up. <laughs> Your ears popped. Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know because I've been having some real bad allergy issues. I woke up at four this morning just sneezing and oh, it's horrible. It's been, yeah. It's been terrible this year. Yeah, and I'm taking off early today to go hit the Elkhorn. So I came in early today. I meant to be here by 7, so I could take off at 3, but I got here at 7.30. I'm taking off at 3.30. So, <laughs> Laura, what else you got? Uh, the way I think so far, we've we've kind of – I wanted I wanted to hit Kentucky Wild today mm-hmm. because uh, yeah. it's a brand-new program. It is exciting. I know all of us want to see it do good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think so far we've kind of uh, described what it is and why mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that right? Yes, I, th- I mean, I think we have so gotten to that. It's basically just a membership program, a, new, a brand new program. It's mm-hmm. membership-based. Uh, there's different levels of membership for individuals or for organizations or yes. sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, The funds are going to go into a separate account specifically for non-game species. Yes. And uh, the species that are deemed vulnerable or most mm-hmm. threatened are the ones mm-hmm. that are going to be getting the attention first. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they want to find out more, they can... Go to YouTube and find that commercial I referenced several yes, times. Yes, absolutely. Our website. our website. Yeah, the website would be the best way. That's just, the best way, right? Yeah. Go, <laughs> and the, the video is on the website. It is. So just go to uh, KY or FW. It's bad when I don't know. Forward slash. Or just a regular slash. K-Y-W-I-L-D, yes. Or you could probably Google search Kentucky Wild. I would imagine you could at this point, yes. And if you go to our homepage, it's on the rotating banner. That banner on the front. Kentucky Wild logo and just click on that. But there's a lot of info there. There's several tabs to flip through. There's a... and I mean, I've been, I guess, at most of the media events. I didn't go to the sponsorship event you did the mm-hmm. other day too, but I was at the uh, 
the media event that morning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there were some some local news organizations there, and there was people from. I saw several cameras. I'm not sure. Who yeah, was there was some there was some print media there yeah. as well, and and you know we are excited about having that the sponsorship yeah. component come on for for companies too. If there yeah. are small businesses or yeah. even larger businesses that that are interested in in contributing to the program, some of the things that we would look at would be you know we're always going to have a need for research equipment, mm-hmm. whether that be for equipment in our laboratory at the Center for Mollusk Conservation or some, you know, field equipment that, may, that we may need, trail cameras, radio transmitters, that sort of thing. Just a curious question. Are you set up as a 5013C? No. Okay. I was just curious about no. that. Um, so, you know, some of the other funds that we could use if there are companies that are interested in donating building materials, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be for nesting structures or or roost structures for bats, yeah. um, or, or maybe there's a company that's just specifically interested in yeah. helping fund some research. I think a good example of that would be uh, on this weekend show, like I already kind of previewed a little bit, the mm-hmm. warbler boxes mm-hmm. are made of mm-hmm. PVC and like a conduit pipe. Mm-hmm. That's some right. Fitting. So that's something that a hardware store or Lowe's or any individual could probably donate from those yes. places. And things like the Kestrel boxes are obviously made of you know, wood, a lot of a lot of building materials, probably what you spend a good amount Our of. Our kestrels like the coolest thing on Earth. Kestrels yeah. are pretty awesome. You know, Jeff is really in love with his. <laughs> Smallest falcon yeah. in North America. <laughs> yep, they are they are great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when when people contribute, I mean, we are certainly going to keep all of these funds in in a, in a separate account. Um, the corporate sponsorships are a little bit different if there mm-hmm. are companies that come to us that have specific land holdings mm-hmm. and they're saying, hey, we're interested in, in doing something. What can we do to, you know, to, for bats? On it might be property. more, yeah, more, more specific projects okay. based on the company. Well, so, but at an individual level where we, we are putting all the money into, to one area and then we will, we will consult, um, you know, with the biologists in our, in our wildlife diversity program and, and look at the priorities in our action plan to decide how those funds are used. Something that reminds me of is something else we've already touched on, but I like more info is always good. So earlier we talked about some of the corporate sponsors for the Peregrine Falcon project, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. you, it sounds like spearheaded back when it first started. That was a while ago. Yes. We the, had the reason that all the corporate sponsors were KU, LGE, and all these people is because Peregrine Falcons needed that nest site, right? Is, is yeah, it? Peregrines, it, Kentucky kind of got in the Peregrine Falcon restoration a little bit later than some of the other states in the Midwest, but historically they nested on cliffs. Mm-hmm. And cliff lines are not always the safest place to yeah. release young birds on. And so there were some anecdotal reports of them nesting on buildings and so that we, sort of thing. We so were we were releasing. looking for, we released them. We were looking for surrogate cliff habitat, okay. is what we were doing. In downtown Lexington, correct? And we started in downtown. Lexington and that that was just following suit to what some other states had done and we would put up what we called hack boxes that's Mm -hmm. H-A-C-K and all that is is it's like an artificial nest site Mm -hmm. and then we purchased peregrine falcon chicks from Mm -hmm. falconers um, in different locations in the country and then we would raise these peregrine falcon chicks hold them in these hack boxes until they were old enough to fledge and then they would go out into the landscape on their own. Very and cool. it was kind of tricky to do because there's no parent falcons to do that. Yeah. So um, it had they had to be watched. We That was my first job. I was a hack yeah. site attendant, and we had to put out the, the dead quail for the birds and monitor their every move and highly labor-intensive. Did you, yeah, well, that's that's that would be that would make sense. I guess, 
That would it make se- sense. It seems strange doing it in uh, in Louisville and Lexington in the big cities, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense yes. because those cities are obviously set up on water for yes. historical reasons that I'm sure Lee knows much more about than I do. Right. I mean, but they're set up on the river system. So Louisville, Lexington, both of them are right there. And then those are where the big buildings are. The right. Tall, but tall Lexington buildings. is unique. It's not on a major water system. It is. The, the well, tricky spot. The Kentucky sp- River is close. It's yeah. not too far away. Well, yeah. the, the tricky spot there, too, is when we were looking for release sites, we, um, we wanted to look at locations that also might not have high populations of great horned owls, which okay. was really the only mm-hmm. obvious natural predator at the spot. Um, so it was a balance. We learned a lot. And they fed on pigeons, correct? Starlings were really the big one. Mm-hmm. I mean, a pigeon certainly sometimes. The interesting thing was there was uh, one peregrine that was went overwintering in Lexington, and this was a while back, but... Um, they would oftentimes hunt, and I, they had to have been going to the Lexington Cemetery. That's the only thing I can figure. But they were hunting, and they would bring their prey back up to some of the signs that were on the top of the buildings. I don't know if they were just warm or they were high up or what it was, but they'd consume their food, and then we'd find the, the, the remains of whatever their food was on the ground. And woodcock, I know, that's crazy, mm-hmm. and, and yellow-billed cuckoos. Really? And crazy, you know, and, and that's not a highly scientific study there. That was what I picked up a yeah. couple times. But it was interesting because you think about where they... I anecdotal stories of people like eating lunch on a park bench around pigeons and a peregrine would smoke oh. a <laughs> well, while eating lunch like, I guess wow, that's... wow, that was cool. <laughs> but yeah, I say, if I saw that, I'd be like, that was the coolest thing I've seen. Yeah, I'd, I'd be going back every day to eat lunch. <laughs> like, 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 come on, baby. <laughs> yeah, peregrines are... Uh, a woodcock, and that's surprising. Yeah, that's probably Lexington. probably not a a routine occurrence, but you know, it's interesting to see what they would bring back. And and you know, if folks are interested in the in the peregrines, it's a little late this year because the the chicks have already hatched. But um, the Mill Creek Station, which is um, outside of Louisville, the LGE folks have a a nest cam on that, and you can cool. it's really neat. Hmm. You can see everything from when the first egg is laid to when the last chick hatches, and it's interesting to see what they bring in as far as food items. I think I, I admit I had it up on one of my screens at my computer. I was watching it every day to see what they brought in because huh. I, I can't, you know, peregrines are something important to me, but uh, they brought in everything from pigeons to um, some of you birders out there might not be so thrilled. A, a rose-breasted grosbeak. I've seen woodpeckers brought in. I mean, it's it's interesting what when you've got four baby peregrine falcon mouths to feed. <laughs> they had both parents. Yeah, you're going to take what's, what's, you're gonna take what, what nature you gives you. Yeah. There's probably not a lot that can get away from a peregrine either. Not so much. No, they're pretty They're pretty good hunters. I've had rose-breasted grosbeaks one time in my, in my feeder in my yard. Just when it was really weird. Yeah. Well, they kind of they kind of blast through in early May. We get a flurry of them, and and apparently them coming to feeders is is a relatively new thing. But I saw them at my feeder this year. The female's like, wow, that's the biggest sparrow I've ever seen. You know what I'm saying? I was like, what is that? Yeah, they. Then the next day, the male shows up, and he's so striking. I was like, in that big beak and the the black and the white, and I was like, wow. So I, that's my one and only. They've never I, need, oh, yeah, they're I, cool. I need to do more of that. I've got a so my I just moved a few months ago, and I've got a spot. I've got tall grass out in front of my house. You know, just natural natural grass. I've got a good sized creek and a small stream, and I've put tens down and boards down to flip for oh. all kinds of stuff. And I leave the grass tall by the creeks and stuff like that. But I don't have any bird feeders out. And I feel like I have the perfect spot for them. I just need to quit being lazy and go to the store and get some. <laughs> You'd have I need some to get fun some with seed it. too. But yeah. man, the squirrels have just been crushing me lately. Yeah. Okay. And that, you know, I try to. I need to get a taller thingy, I guess, because <laughs> it's a little piece of metal that they can't really climb, but they jump. Yeah, you know, they squirrels are good. can jump, man. You They're know? acrobats. My dogs, my 
Tilly used to chase them. Belle does sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like a major thing. You can tell when squirrels coming because the neighbor's no. dogs bark. At our <laughs> dog. My my dog has a thing for. I mean, he can never catch a squirrel, but he he does a good job running running them off. And he's a rabbit dog, and I, and there's nothing I enjoy more than watching. Or quick. Oh, oh we just got a chipmunk chaser at our house. We don't. <laughs> yeah, I've got chipmunks too. Yeah. Belle stalks the chipmunks. She'll be like, "Let me out," and then she'll. And it, it gets away. I, I like <laughs> I like watching my dog because I can almost just sit and watch him because there's not a whole lot of cover around some of the areas on the farm. But I mean, there's uh, barns and things that hold rabbits, and so he'll run a rabbit out of there, and I'll I'll be able to watch you know 500 yards away. Oh, there goes that rabbit, and I'll watch my dog work over to him, and then I will watch <laughs> that rabbit jump out and go somewhere else, and it's kind of just like a fun little game of cat and mouse. He never wins. <laughs> my granddad said in his youth that he could run a rabbit. If you can keep up with them, they'll eventually just roll over. Huh. And um, there was a high school football team down in uh, Florida, and that's how he taught. And a bunch of those guys end up being, you know, SEC caliber, ACC caliber defensive backs because they could run rabbits. That's wow. tough. And a guy that, that was on the show, Leroy Blue. Did you work on the Leroy piece? Mm-mm. Leroy can run a rabbit. I don't even remember when that piece went out. Um, oh, Leroy. I don't yeah, remember Leroy. The rabbit hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah the rabbit's out in uh, Madison he can, County. He can, yes, he can run a rabbit. Right. I've hunted that farm for 25 years. That sounds like a whole new segment idea, running there rabbits. There you go, running rabbits. But, no. um, you got to be spry and young like Chase to do it. Like Chase. <laughs> I'm too tall to run a rabbit. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get up and go quick enough. I can hit a pretty good speed when I get going, but it takes me a while to get moving. All right, it has been, we have been going for a while now. I have to organize my tackle box and fix my pedal drive before I get on the creek today in 15 minutes. So we got to wrap this bad boy up. <laughs> All right. So is there anything else, Laura, that we didn't touch on that you wanted to? I don't know. I, I think we did. We are just, we're I've, really excited. We've already had a lot mm-hmm. of memberships rolling in. Good. Um, and it really, the press release just went out last yeah, June 1st. Yeah, June, June 1st so was been... the launch for us, and we're excited because if you join now, um, our, our Kentucky Wild memberships run from January to December, but oh. because we uh, just launched in June, this is going to be kind of a bonus. If you join now, um, your membership will not expire until December of 2019, oh. so you're kind of getting a year and a half in here. There you go. All right. And cool. we would love to, to invite you to look at our website and... Uh, you know, we're we're excited. We're having people join every day. And like I said, we're having our very, very first wildlife experiences at the end of the month. We're going to try to do at least one of those a month. Yeah. So well, June 1 was the uh, the announcement date. And yep. you've already got memberships. You've yes, already got experiences do. getting geared up. We and, do. Uh, I'm excited that we were able to have you on the podcast. Yeah, today. well, thank you so much. It, this was a good one. No, I thought it was fun. It was I good. I really did. I'm very good. Well, maybe you can we invite ourselves back. Maybe we can have a... A participant in one of our first experiences Ooh, right. come back and hear Ooh. hear the fun they had because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, that'll be that'll good. be very cool. Yeah. Let's uh, all right, let's get back together. Thanks for coming on, Laura. Enjoy yeah, you having you. Thank you. And uh, I guess I'm going to hit the stop button. Wrap it up. Mm-hmm.